You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, brought to you by Starburst Magazine, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm J.R. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. And uh, Mr. Peter on Gallifrey Base has said, apropos of our Cliffhangers episode, surely the best modern cliffhanger was the is he or isn't he going to regenerate David Tennant one? Mm. Mm, I think I was going back to what um, Simon was saying about ones that perhaps are a bit disappointing when they pay off in the next part and for me but surely the cliffhanger itself the cliffhanger itself the cliffhanger at itself, the time yes, mm, granted mm. still didn't know did we yeah. whether he was going to change or not at that point it's mm-hmm. like wow this is this would be great if this yeah. happens yeah. and in fact it's a shame they kind of didn't do it mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah i agree yeah, that was it i was convinced actually that they could because it has always been since the series has come back and especially with since the next doctor it's always been something that's just sort of been in my head that they want to. They want to do a regeneration, particularly as the Clis- the Christopher Eccleston one wasn't supposed to be out of the bag. David Tennant didn't start filming no. until after Series 1 finished airing. And so it's, oh, it's always, does it rankle with them that they just haven't been able to do it yet? And every time this comes up, The Next Doctor and The Stolen Earth, I keep thinking... Are they? Will they get away with it? Have they kept it a secret? And every time it disappoints because they didn't. I mean, the Mm. next Doctor, I've said this before, I'm not sure on this podcast, but if David Morrissey had been, uh, you know, contracted to star as the 11th Doctor, you know, six or eight months down the line, Mm. they could have put him in that episode. Absolutely, yeah. And it could have worked. Thoroughly disappointed when I found that he wasn't. Yeah, David Morrissey, wonderful actor. Yeah. Anyway, moving on slightly. And he said, and he said he would oh, do it, didn't he? He said he wasn't out of the question; and he'd do it. Yeah, uh, yeah. that might have been just no, might have been no, just no. talk for the, <clears throat> you know, wow. for the publicity machine. But... Yeah. Mm. Anyway, apologies for taking a sip of tea. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, on the spot this week for the next sixty seconds, starting now, Lee will be talking about Fury from the Deep. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Fury from the Deep. Well, it's something that I read a long time ago. It's something I've listened to on the audio, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. But I have memories that just have slipped through my my brain onto the floor. I can't really remember much about it apart from the foam. Lots of foam, lots of laughing. The lovely, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, TARDIS crew having a bit of a laugh. The uh, the screaming kind of nasty... Oh, what were the names of those those two uh, villainous people? Oak and Quill. They were brilliant. They reminded me of uh, James Bond villains. Two James Bond villains in probably Spy Who Loved Me or something like that. I can't remember now. But they were, you know, pretty nasty pieces of work. I, re- I love the fact that it was on an oil refinery, or a bit of it was. Um, and it was quite a John Pertwee episode. It felt like it could have easily have been John Pertwee there doing this earth-based screaming seaweed episode. Loved it. B-movie, fantastic, but I can't really remember much about it. Sorry. And you've 
got to keep going for another. Oh, and the tar- the Target novel cover was Ace. And there's your bit. Well, I've got to say, I am thoroughly disappointed. I was seriously trying to surprise him then, and he just sort of said, yeah, "Okay," and started talking about it. I knew you were going to say that. Did you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just not fair. So that wasn't how I planned it at all. We, didn't, we hadn't talked about it either, but it just, I just knew you were going to say that, that story. Really? Isn't that weird? Yeah. Perhaps because... Timey-wimey. Yeah. <laughs> I've been talking to... Psyche-wikey. Psyche-wikey. Oh, <laughs> Eric Sykes has just died as well, hasn't yeah. he? Has. Oh, Eric. Never been in Doctor Who. No. Should he have been in Doctor Who? Yes, of course he should have. Yeah, he's one of those... Well, you know, I mean, you can point oh. to any actor and say they should, but Eric Sykes really should. It'd you? have been yeah, good in Spearhead and Space. Actually, Eric Somewhere. Sykes would probably have been in Doctor Who at around the time of Sylvester McCoy when, <laughs> you know, they were getting people like Nicholas Parsons in, wouldn't he? He would have been, in fact, Eric Sykes would have been great in that Nicholas Parsons role, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. Played all, straight all the, and, uh, all the um, Ken Dodd role. Because he was in the others, the Nicole Kidman film. He was very good in that. Richard Pryor's role. They've been bad. That would have been a different take on the character. Yeah. Right. We have actually, and you know, this is a first for the Blue Box podcast, and this is episode number 16 or 17 or something. Uh, we've yeah. done our homework yes. <laughs> 17 it'll be okay yeah. oh my lucky number great place to start it right we have a competition do we yes we do okay what is it well we didn't really have a competition but you guys <laughs> were talking about it so we decided to do it so whatever okay, okay we have a competition and a competition is this well here's the prize then one lucky listener will be winning the I'm following. not so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> when Simon first joined the podcast, he came along one Thursday night. We record on Thursday nights. And Lee couldn't make it that night. Right. Now, here's something you won't know. Neither Mark <laughs> nor I had ever met Simon before. So we attempted to record an episode with the three of us. With, you know, me and Mark and a complete stranger in the room. Happily, he's not a stranger anymore. <laughs> but let's put it this way that episode went pretty disastrously wrong however we do still have it on our hard drive oh. and so one lucky reader reader one lucky listener <laughs> or unlucky listener who yeah, this will have to be by email to blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk if you answer this question correctly in fact anybody who answers this question correctly we will send you the file, and you can listen to the episode four that never made it to transmission. Wow, a lost episode. Indeed. Well, it's not lost. We've got it on our hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to send it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's like... Like uh, a pilot, almost. Well, it's like Sharder, or, you know... Let's uh, not build it up too much. Okay. No, <laughs> no. You did it's say like the word... Sharder. You're, you're comparing that episode with something written by Douglas Adams. Mm, you did, say, you did say disastrous. That's not really... Not really selling it to the public, <laughs> though, is it? So what is the question? It's not really disastrous. It's just not terribly good. But if you <laughs> if you enjoy our show enough to be listening here 17 episodes in, then presumably you won't email in unless you're curious to hear this mm, I am. <laughs> episode. So, you know, if you email in and you get the answer right, I don't think anybody will, actually, to be honest, once you hear the question. Yeah. Or maybe if you answer something amusing that we like and we'll read out on a future show. Yeah. 
But here's the thing. At the end of our episode on Colin Baker, which will be on iTunes under the name Six, I think that was 13 or 14. Was 13, wasn't 13. it? 13. The one yeah. where you swear. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Do we need to... It's like this is the new Adric, isn't it? Say with oh, Gate. Oh, we haven't talked about him for a while, have we? No, <laughs> we don't mention Adric anymore. We <laughs> mention JR stepping out of line. <laughs> I was shocked. In that episode... <laughs> Right at the very, very end of the episode, we all say our goodbyes, and then there's a slight pause, and something happens, something that you can't hear, but that we can all see, that causes the four of us to burst out laughing. We'd like you to take a guess at what that might have been. And you can direct all of your answers to... Podcast at yahoo.co.uk. It will need to be by email because we will need your email address to email you the file. There we go. So what's uh, this one all about? Uh, it's going to be about Doctor Who. It's going to be about 60 minutes <laughs> and we're going to be talking so that they don't have to. <laughs> well, I'm glad I've cleared that up. <clears throat> uh, actually, the week this episode is due to go out, I think, is the weekend following the publication of the next issue of Starburst magazine, which is 379, and in which my column that month will be about the first Doctor. Oh, okay. And, you know, as we do, you know, as we've tended to do eras about every few episodes, six Doctors, seventh Doctor we've done, let's go back to the start and do the first Doctor, where it all started. So we're going to call this one One. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then. You can start, JR. What's, uh, what are we going to be talking about? What's the... The first subject to kick off with. I have no idea, actually. We have no notes whatsoever. We don't have We've got a list of episodes, <laughs> and all we're going to do is talk about it. I could bring up what's in the column. Do you want to? Yeah, you could do. Yeah, I wasn't particularly planning to, but I mean, right. I may as well. Listen, it's, it's a biggie. It's the it's yeah the Doctor Who. It started right here. Well, what actually, no, let's forget can that. I, can, I just, can I just say that? Are we, we going to talk about the pilot at any point throughout this, or is that, is that not I counted? think we should come back to the pilot. All right, okay. But, just in so fact, on the subject of the pilot, and <laughs> I don't, I'm not really a sort of trivia type of a person. I mean, I know stuff, production stuff, the important stuff. Last week we were talking about the different writers on, uh, you know, the um, season seven stories. Mm. And, in fact, we didn't bring up the fact that Inferno was quite massively rewritten as well because the original script did not have the alternative Earth storyline. No. So, you know, we were talking about the writers and that's, I guess, a kind of trivia. But my favourite piece of Doctor Who trivia of all time, and you'll like this, Lee, because your surname is... Rawlings. Right. The pilot episode, because Doctor Who is essentially, back in the 1960s, filmed live. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just swallowed a burp in the middle of that sentence so that none of the rest of you had to. (laughs) That's very David Tennant. Um, uh, The pilot episode (laughs) essentially is filmed as live. And when it gets remounted and Unearthly Child, the version that we all know, Mm. that's essentially filmed as live. My favourite piece of trivia is that the first person to be filmed in Doctor Who never made it to the screen. That very first person you see in Doctor Who was replaced when they remounted the episode. The policeman. Yeah, the policeman. For whatever Mm. reason, the same actor, they couldn't use him. They had to use somebody else. Bernie Cribbins. I'd be gutted with that. (laughs) And one of those two guys was Reg Cranfield, and the other guy was Fred Rawlings. 
Really? Yeah. Reg Cranfield, was he a convict? I think it was Cranfield. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, you or know, I, I just imagine this guy sort of, hey, you know, driving his taxi or whatever is his part-time job because he's not getting much money for being an extra. And all these passengers in the back of his taxi and he's saying, hey, on Saturday the 23rd of November, you'll see this program on BBC One called Doctor Who. Look out for it. I'm the very first person in it. Yeah, you might have to tune in the following week because I've got a premonition that something big's going to happen and they'll have to repeat it again. And then they tuned in, and lo and behold, it's not the guy who was driving the taxi. <laughs> Got to be gutted, haven't you? Anyway, that's That'd fine. Be, that would be a story that you'd live off for the rest of your life. I did a very, very cruel thing to my brother when I was when I first heard about the pilot. I've got to say, I was super excited about it, you know, and it was mid-80s. We were all going on pirate video at that point, and I just thought, oh, there's, there's a copy of the pilot around, and I want to watch it. Um, and I had a few nerdy friends at school that were too higher up the hierarchy of nerds to, to, to count me as a as a nerd, <laughs> even though I knew what boss or unit meant, and boss and unit. But there was this, this moment, I thought, pilot, okay, this is interesting, this is very important, fantastic. And my brother asked me, he said, you know, what, what's the pilot about? Because he was getting into talk two as well, and I said, oh, it's brilliant. So that's that's where the Doctor steals the TARDIS <laughs> and pilots it away from Gallifrey. <laughs> and I'd forgotten I told him this, and he, t- he talked to me about five years ago, you know, he's 35 now. He said, I can't believe that that's out there and no one's seen it yet. And I said, what? And he went, the pilot, you know, where he steals the TARDIS. I went, oh, oh, um, I, oh uh, that was a lie. but uh, I forgot to tell him that I didn't realise that that was the case either because the nerds at the top of the hierarchy also lied to me at that particular point yeah Uh, so I believe that that was a you know him stealing the TARDIS as well anyway that's my bit of you still believe in the tooth fairy don't you Lee yeah they like calcium have you seen Hellboy anyway now moving swiftly swiftly (laughs) swiftly along we, well, in the column, the distinction that I was trying to make, I wasn't talking about the First Doctor in general terms. I was talking about a specific ap- aspect of the First Doctor's tenure. And because I always assert in this podcast and in these columns that the Doctor Who that we know and love today was basically born around about the time of Season 8. Or Season 5 was the roots for Season 8. The monster show. That's what it is. It's the monster of the week. Prior to that, of course, the William Hartnell tenure, it was nothing of the sort. Mm. I mean, you can count the number of monsters, proper evil, villainous monsters in William Hartnell on your fingers, you know? And that's including like three different species in the web planet. (laughs) So, So the distinction I was trying to make in the column, I was trying to show how the William Hartnell era went from being one thing at the start to something completely different by the time it finished and the different phases that it actually went through in the meantime. And if you buy Starburst, which I'm assuming some of the people listening to this will, you might already have read that and you'll have seen what I had to say a lot more eloquently than I'm it was, it was a gro- It was a growing plant. They, they they stuck a seed in the pot. They Everybody got together. They created this interesting premise and idea. They did the pilot. Can we have to bring that in? They showed Sidney Newman, and he said, mm, no, I don't want, don't want that. I don't want this. The Doctor's far too harsh. We're going to make him a bit nicer. So within just one filmed episode, he changed a lot about uh, the characters, and you know, especially the Doctor anyway. And then you go into the first episode, and you get that fanta- Unearthly Child as a fantastic episode and introduction to this character. 
in the way that we start the school, we start with the teachers and the mystery. The thing, and a lot of money was thrown at that episode, so they the had a thing, little less money later. Yeah, the, to <laughs> but build it the TARDIS. Really nice. Well, they had to build the TARDIS. But the thing we always forget about that first change. episode, it being goes. Doctor Who fans, I mean, we all look at it as Doctor Who fans and think that's a great first episode. What we can kind of tend to forget is actually it's just a great piece of television. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's sort of remarked upon often enough, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of Doctor Who stories that only function as Doctor Who. There's a lot of Doctor Who stories that work really well as television in general. But that first episode of Doctor Who is just a blindingly good piece there's of television. There's a lot of creative filming going on. There's a lot of tracking shots. You know, the first moment you go through the TARDIS doors and into the white console room, you know, that, that yeah. amazing juxtaposition from the dirty mm. scrapyard, the old telephone box, and then this beautifully clean science fiction looking room, which is why I, I do mourn the loss of the clean clinical look, the TARDIS, because the outside is supposed to be grubby, the inside is supposed to be clean. That's what that designer, I think, was intending. And now we, what we get is you get the outside is grubby and the inside it'd be nice. is Next time they do messy. a redesign, it'd be nice to get back to some of that, wouldn't it? Maybe, Actually, yeah. I mean, yeah. but I suppose the thing is, obviously, about the redesign is that it would look dated. And, of course, I suppose mm. it does look dated now. I think after that pilot as well, the pressure was really on, on Warris Hussain and Verity Lambert as well. <laughs> this is where I was, you know, this is what I was about to bring up. Warris Hussain, he's gone on to bigger and better things now. Mm. Obviously, mm. Marco Polo, which was just bigger. Yeah. And of other things which are probably not actually better either, so I don't know why I said that. But <laughs> Warris Hussein has got on to bigger and better things, and Verity Lambert, of course, did too. But at the time that the pilot was made, those two were completely untested. Mm. And they were sort of ingenues in this big old corporation, and the eyes of the corporation were on them, and they really had something to prove. And this is part of the reason why the pilot was refilmed. Hmm. You didn't even bother swallowing that burp, did you? That's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was the uh, whole structure of the BBC had changed, hasn't it? Because it was a lot yeah. of stuff suits and they started bringing in people like uh, Sidney Newman and yeah. Horace Hussain and loads of Sydney people. Sidney Newman being Australian. But still... Canadian. Uh, Verity Lambert, a real mixture of people that probably wouldn't be in that corporation making those decisions. Uh, before that time, like mm. you say, the, the stuffed shirts of the olden days yeah. were starting to be ousted out and new blood was coming in. And mm. there was a massive shake-up. So to take something on board like Doctor Who and run with it was like, wow, you're really throwing your knickers in the air here. and saying. But it really shows in those first stories, and I've said this, and I'm sure we've talked about it here, uh, the first story, Tribe of Gum, yeah. and the second story, The Daleks, they're just pulp fiction scripts. But they take them so seriously. It's like really serious, almost kitchen sink in outer space drama. The mm. way they, the way they film it, the way they, the way they act it, how seriously the whole production yeah. takes it. There's no humour, and if there's any humour, it's between the characters making light of a particular situation. And it makes for a really weird mix. And I mean, you look at things like the theme tune and the opening titles of Doctor Who, and yes, that's really weird. By itself. And Colin Baker famously told that story of how he was um, a young actor or just a student at the time and how he was just coming into his digs one night Mm. as Doctor Who was starting and he had his foot on the first step on his way upstairs and the theme music came on in the corner of the room and 25 minutes later he was still, still standing there with his foot on that step 
because that first episode had just so to- totally caught his imagination, he was just transfixed for 25 minutes. Mm. Now, here's the thing. Yes, the theme is weird. And yes, the music, the uh, the pictures you get in the opening titles are weird. Different, completely different from anything anybody would ever have seen. But then you get into the episode itself, and this carries on for a good number of weeks, but the episode itself functions so differently from what you would expect. Normally, you'd expect a serious script to uh, make for a serious piece of television and a silly script to make for a silly piece of television. But here, you've got a silly script making for a serious piece of television. And it's just like this weird juxtaposition. And I don't think it's the kind of thing you even notice. I think if you're watching the Tribe of Gum bits of uh, An Unearthly Child or the Daleks, because it's ingrained in your memory as a Doctor Who fan, you just accept it for what it is. But I mean... If you were to put that in front of a television audience in 1963, apart from the fact that, you know, this is four modern people walking around in cavemen times and, you know, on an alien planet, <laughs> just the tone of it is so weird and so mm, different. Mm. It's it is, such it, an unusual start. It's interesting because you get, <laughs> you know, you get the going back in time is weird enough, okay, but that's that's that can be accepted. You know, you think it's a time machine. Cavemen, okay, there's a story here about fire and, 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 and being locked up and all this sort of stuff. Okay, it's a bit of a run-around, it's a bit of fun. Um, the second one, you know, the Daleks, the mutants, really far-out science fiction ideas. Obviously, the Daleks captured, captured everybody's imagination. Weird, but it's science fiction. You can go, yeah, it's a story, it's linear. And then you get inside the spaceship, uh, which is a bizarre, completely weird sideways step into kind of a world of nuttiness. Well, that's what they were planning to and do. And I'm not sure how, how the viewing public would have seen that when, or whether they would have even enjoyed that. Well, I don't so know what weird. they would have made of those first two stories either, no, is what no. I'm saying. Because you say it's silly, but the tone of the stories is so dead straight. It's like... No, I didn't say it's silly, I just said it's weird, bizarre. No, you're talking about uh, the cavemen, you say it's silly story. It's it's fun. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not. That's my point. It's not fun. It's really dark. Mm. That the cavemen story and the Daleks is too. It's death, and you know nobody's smiling and laughing. I don't and think anyone jokes. shows fear of the Daleks like uh, Barbara, like, like Barbara, does. and the well, others as well. Ian, they're not when smiling he gets his anymore. Shot out from under him. <laughs> no, I mean that whole those whole. Oh, yes. The only people that show fear episodes. of Daleks now is um, people who know their reputation. There's it's no not, smiles the or way. laughs. Anywhere no. in those first 13 <clears throat> episodes, not a single one, I don't think. Mm. Not a single light moment. I can't think of one. Mm. No, and no. the Daleks, it really is, really played really, really, really straight down the line. Mm. Keys of Marinus gets a little bit more uh, yeah, playful, doesn't it? That's the point of when okay. it changes. Mm. Yeah. But this was my, you know, this is the point I'm making is that you've got this program that's doing the, you know, the films around sort of slightly later, but that kind of film of the time mm. you've got, um, I was a teenage caveman when dinosaurs <laughs> ruled the earth, 1 million years BC. Yeah. And doctor who is doing the tribe of gum. Mm. You know, it is not of anything. No. Doctor who was not a program that bore any kind of comparison, not just with other television programs, but with anything at all. And this was 1963. This wasn't even, you know... I think it's a minor miracle. Sergeant You're saying about all these, all these people, 
all these diverse people coming into one place to make this thing happen. It is mm. a minor miracle, isn't it? I was going to say, all the stars were in the right place when that was made. Absolutely. Yes. But they had a few problems trying to get it on air and, and stuff was going wrong and people's TV <clears> sets didn't work and JFK was shot. You know, there were all this kind of stuff that, you know, oh God, you know, the thing could have failed. Yes. But it didn't and they gave they had that extra 26 episodes all of a sudden from mm. 13 to 26. Mm. Yep, okay, you've got to go ahead, go for it. Which will really happy about what about you know when it goes into things like marco polo like you say it's taking itself seriously there as well i think you know so even beyond there's very little um levity anywhere until you get to not even the keys of mariners this is the thing about keys of mariners that's when that's the first one that's seriously pulpy Mm. and that's the first one where the production team kind of not lets their hair down because they don't allow it to be funny but it's the first one where they pull back from the relentlessness, really. Yeah. Yeah, and you have got, you know, Ian and Barbara, or whoever it is that's lying down, having grapes fed them in this, you know, imaginary It's, it's fantastical, place. isn't it? It's, and they're laughing and they're, they've been there a while or whatever, I can't remember now. But it's flamboyant. It's flamboyant, it, you know. Yeah. But they, yeah, the thing is, the first story that you can actually smile at, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah it is. But... Um, yeah, and then you head towards things like... It goes so well, doesn't it? And you hit the sensor rights. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the future of space is dull. Um, <laughs> the sensor rights... I, I always think sensor rights looks like the kind of programme that Doctor Who might have been had it been made in 1953. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Actually, and if, it had been, that, if that had been made in 1953, that would have been a breakthrough. Yeah, but as it was, actually. it was a backward step. Yeah. Right, I didn't want to go through story by story, though. No, but uh, the, it was to... the shades that I was kind of picking yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Well, his th- the the first series is the Lambert and Pinfield series, right? And Whitaker. Mm. Yeah. And so you've got these three characters who are um, shaping it. And you've got the three um, different kinds of story that they have set out to tell. I mean, if we go back to before Doctor Who actually started and look at what went into it, I mean, here's the crazy, crazy thing. As people with interest in the arts, right, we will always say that art should be made by individuals and genius and inspiration and not by committee. Doctor Who was made by committee. Mm. They sent a couple of people out to find out what kind of... I mean, Sidney Newman had this idea to put on a sci-fi show at tea time on a Saturday night, and he sent a couple of people from the BBC out to find out what kind of sci-fi they thought they could get away with showing at tea time on a Saturday night. And they came back, and they put all the ideas together, and they came up with Doctor Who. It was television by committee. Mm. And that's such a bizarre thing that we ought to think that we should like. Mm. But the ideas that they came up with, I mean, um, one of the suggestions was that they should not adapt but that they should take the tropes that had been used in famous science fiction novels and use those tropes within the story of these four travellers in time and space. So you could have ended up with a season a season one that was entirely made up of things like Foundation and iRobot and such like. Mm, mm. <clears throat> yeah, well, the Masters of Luxor, which nearly made it to screen, was a yeah. bit like that. Yeah, I think, and they said no, we don't want that. There was Anthony Coburn that wrote that, was it? Um, who yeah, did the so, Tribe yeah. Gum? Yeah, and I think actually um, mentioned that the TARDIS should be a police box. I think it's him that gave. Oh, it could be. Yeah, that iconic, you know, 
time travel box. That would have been another life. expense if they've had it to... Yeah, but it may have been just a passing phrase. I think, like you said, by committee, they all have got together and somebody said, well, you know, uh, Sydney, we want... The, how about this? There's this person, this person, that person. He'd go, no, what about it travels in space as well as time? And maybe that bloke comes from a planet and he's not... You know, so they're, they're sitting around in a pub somewhere, all smoking and drinking their Guinness, and they're writing on the back of beer mats, you know. And, and they come up feel with like the idea... Yeah. But it's amazing that the idea is so extremely weird that it got made by people, like you say, in the early 60s, before psychedelic This is the kind of thing you may have expected in 67 or 68, <laughs> but not in 63. No. Two teachers. I mean, how committee is that? They want to do science fiction stories and they want to do stories set in history. So the first two characters you have are a science teacher and a history teacher. Genius. <laughs> Gen- em- embarrassing. Genius. It's a brilliant idea. I love it. It's I love the so idea. simple. Two of the best companions in the whole series history. Because of the actors. Yeah. And I do think that's purely oh, yeah. because of the actors. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, they say about great comedy is played straight, don't they? And it's, it's, I know it's not comedy, it's, it's the other side, but, but the fact that it was series, played straight. into it, yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm. Well, you know, Ian, Ian Chesterton and William Russell did have moments of comedy with, um, you know, William Hartnell when Willie kept Willie? <laughs> Willie, yeah. old Willie. Willie to his would mates. Fluff his lines in, all, all on oh, purpose, calling Chesterfield say, or whatever. Yeah. You're bringing up Billy Fluffs. I watched The Chase last night and there's a line, I'm trying to remember it now, it's something along the lines of, they're trying to convince him they want to go use a Dalek time ship to go back to their own yeah. time. Is that the point where he says, he like, says two that... cinders floating around in Spain? Yes. <laughs> That's <laughs> I had to rewind it again just to make sure I hadn't misheard it. It was great. <laughs> it is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I love that so much. Now, I was going to say, of course, we haven't mentioned the fact that they had these three types of stories. Because although, I mean, this is difficult to kind of sum up, but Doctor Who starts with a completely open book, right? Mm. This is a machine that can go anywhere in time and space. So it goes into the future, and then it goes into the past, and then it goes into the future, and then it goes into the past. It's a completely open format, and they format it to hell. (laughs) It's like it alternates literally between two types of stories, week in and week out. Well, there is the sideways step. Yeah, well, that's the point. There were supposed to be three kind of stories and they had no clue what to do with the third time, mm. the sideways stories. So they did one and then they forgot it. Did they? Well, no, there is one later, Lee. I Planet of the Giants. That's yeah. a sideways story. It was Macra. Was that a sideways story? Macra. I think you're taking mm. me a little bit too literally. Am I? Sorry, Macra's Patrick Trout, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's how crabs move, isn't it? Sideways. Oh, oh God. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 uh, is it time for Bungle then? Space oh, Museum. No. Do a Billy Fluff as Bungle. What? We'll we'll write it down for you. <laughs> yeah, write so, it down. Space Museum again is another attempt at sideways that didn't quite that work. Didn't, yeah, but no. you're right, it is mostly that format of forward and backwards. It, the, the thing about it is, in fact, you've just brought up Planet of Giants as a sideways story, right? Yeah. Which happens later. And I said they've forgotten to do the sideways stories. They've just shoved it to one side because they don't know how to. Right? Planet of Giants yes. is the first Doctor Who story. That was going to be the first Doctor Who story. Yeah. yeah. Written by a different person, yeah. but the same idea. 
So Doctor Who was going to start with a sideways story. So if you consider that Planet of Giants was not written first, but the idea came first, and then the Edge of Destruction is again right at the very start of the series, mm. you know, that's it. There are no more sideways stories. They just didn't know how to do it. They didn't know what to do. But, uh, and again, I mean, you say that you know, the, the, the shades change throughout those seasons quite dramatically when the humour starts kicking in. Well, this is with the change like of the story. and, you know, people like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Well, David Whittaker leaves and Dennis Spooner comes in. And it starts with the Reign of Terror, really, because Dennis Spooner writes the script for Reign of Terror while David Whittaker is still the story editor. And then when David Whittaker leaves, Dennis Spooner gets the job and then he can bring in more things of that kind of ilk. His, the Romans, for instance. And then later on you get scripts in like uh, The Time Meddler. But, I mean, quite... I, I, I'm not obviously going to ask you, but you guys, do you know much William Hartnell? Do you think it, it, it suffers changing from being taking itself seriously to going towards a bit more comedy edge stuff like The Romans? I don't think so the... because I think the, um, the characters developed. Uh, and in that sort of situation, humour does develop when you get used to people. So they start, actually, when they don't know each other. Yeah. There's a tension, very definitely. Mm. Yeah. This gets talked about a lot as well. At what point does Doctor Who soften? Is it after the edge of destruction when they've had those two episodes? Mm. Or actually, there's an episode of Marco Polo when there's a, a bit where William Hartnell has this huge fight with um, Marco Polo and disappears for an episode and comes back a changed character with more respect for Barbara and Ian, right? Mm. Something along those lines. Yeah. So there's very definitely a softening between well, the tension it, at the start and the... Whether it was thought out or not, it, it seems like a natural progression anyway. Yeah. Well, that's... Yeah, yeah, I don't think it was... I don't think it was planned no. that specifically. No. I think they just wrote those first episodes with the idea of the Doctor as this cantankerous old bugger. And then it just... It couldn't stay like that, so they just it mm. just happened. It just et its way into those scripts that he had to get softer mm. and into his performance. And obviously the actors as well. I mean, I said this about something else, about um, when Katie Manning left John Pertwee and how genuine his feelings about her leaving were, because it wasn't just the actor, mm. it wasn't just the character who was leaving, but yeah. also the actor who was leaving. Yeah. Exactly the same here. You know, when they're making that first episode, William Hartnell, uh, Jacqueline Hill, William Russell and Carol Ann Ford, they've never met before. Mm. No, no. You know, I mean, a couple of weeks earlier or whatever for read-throughs and rehearsals and all this kind of stuff. But they're strangers. Do you mm. know, and that's the other interesting thing. The time it took to get it to screen from, uh, you know, conception to it being actually a piece of tv was something i'm sure i read it as being march sydney had the idea of oh let's make a science fiction program and by you know november it'd be made and it was on telly i mean you're talking six months to create design film you know cast yeah this is in the days when you know things could be on telly within the week yeah yeah but i just found it amazing that the whole thing was so Quick, like quite a punishing schedule as well. They seem to be filming constantly, you know. Yeah, well, all yeah. The time. yeah. And do you know what? Hence, hence them disappearing for episodes, I suppose. Mm. Well, Doctor Who was on air for, I think, something like an average of 45 weeks a year. Mm. Jacqueline Hill and William Russell, I don't know about the rest of them, earned £16 an episode. Mm. 16 quid <laughs> for that acting. They yeah. They deserve a medal. <laughs> 
That would be 1,600 quid a week these no, days. No, it wouldn't be that much, I'm sure. 16 quid, though. Oh, yeah. I think it would. Do you reckon? Oh, yeah. I think we're talking like five, 600 pounds, maybe. I don't know what an actor's wage is. Who well, cares? Well, anyway. <laughs> I think the companion gets well, probably more We don't more get paid anything, do we? So. <laughs> oh, who's, the, who's the girl who played Dodo Chaplet, by the way? Jackie Lane. Jackie Lane. Didn't she have the... Wasn't she uh, auditioned for... Oh, for Caroline Ford's role? Yeah. Right at the very start. Right? I think I you're right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would have been an interestingly different... You're back on trivia now. Sorry, but I was just—I just like the ideas of of what ifs. I've always been interested in that, anyway. Well, here's but a would, what would if. Would be interesting you. to see how she would have. Or played not that. a what if, but here's a piece of trivia along those kinds of lines. Yeah. Maybe Planet of Giants loses an episode, right? Yeah. Uh, we know the story of why Planet of Giants loses an episode. I don't. Uh, I can't remember. I have heard it. Well, remember. the first production run eventually took you up to Dalek Invasion of Earth. And then there was going to be a break, and then they were going to come back with the rescue. But they decided that, for whatever reason, they were going to take the break in transmission earlier. So they'd take a break in transmission after the Reign of Terror, and they very quickly film a little scene at the end of the Reign of Terror. If you watch, actually, you'll see the final scene at the end of Reign of Terror has got no live acting on. They've just got the voices and photographs because they've tacked this scene on at the end. Mm. Uh, And then they take a six-week break, and then it comes back. Now, when it comes back, you want it to come back quite strong, because you want to hype up the return, right? So they've got two stories already in the can. Planet of Giants, Mm. which they didn't think was strong enough to start the series off in the first place, so they definitely don't think it's strong enough to start the series off now. And Dalek Invasion of Earth. Daleks on Earth. Which of those two are you going to choose? Dalek Invasion of Earth, obviously. Mm. Switch the running order. Put Dalek Invasion of Earth on first. Stick Planet of Giants afterwards. But Carol Ann Ford leaves at the end of Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah. So they can't switch the running order. So you're stuck with four weeks of Planet of Giants. And uh, is it Sidney Newman? Somebody at the BBC says, no. I'm not having that. Not four weeks of that story. Cut it down to three episodes so we can get it out of the way and get the Daleks on. So they edit the final two episodes down into a single episode. But, and here's the thing. This is where it gets interesting. <clears throat> now, I I don't know if I've got the details of this absolutely correct, but the actors are contracted for a certain number of recording sessions and a certain number of transmitted episodes. And because the number of recording sessions has now outstripped the number of transmitted episodes by one on account of the fact that they recorded four episodes of Planet of Giants, but only three made it to screen. There is now a discrepancy in the contracts whereby all the actors have to film one less episode than has to be transmitted. Right. And hence, you get Mission to the Unknown, an episode in which none of the regulars appear. Uh... Happy accident. Again. I like that. I like that. Well, I I wouldn't swear by that, but I'm pretty sure. That's, I hope that's the theory. Yeah, well, no, I'm pretty sure that's, that's how it right. how it goes. Yeah, we haven't really talked about William Hartnell yet, have we? This is no, interesting. Well, you know, it's almost too obvious. <laughs> He's been in some pretty it's high profile. Say, films. I think we've all had a long week and we're all struggling. A bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, he'd been in Brighton Rock. Rock. He'd been in. Uh, what else has he been in? Did you say Brighton Rock? Yeah. Yes. He's he's in the army game. Was he in the army game? No. 
Yes, he, he was, was in Carry On Sergeant as well, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, Carry On Sergeant. Yeah. yeah, but he played a lot of hard nuts. And yeah, he plays great hard his. nuts, actually. Yeah, he'd been in very adult stuff. Yeah, and I don't think he'd done anything that was remotely kiddie friendly. And yet, here's this production team, which is already made up of people like Warris Hussein and Anthony Coburn, uh, probably I don't know, and Verity Lambert. Already, the BBC and Sydney Newman are taking a risk and putting these people in charge of this program. And who do they come up with to star in it? This guy who's, <laughs> you know, been in all these really grown-up films. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm. you know, they took a big risk on William Hartnell. And he also, to be fair to him, took a big risk on starring in this series. Mm. Mm. And for everybody concerned, it wasn't just a risk. It was a, um, a leap in the dark, a leap of faith. And it works. I mean, it's brilliant. He, he adored playing that role didn't he absolutely yeah i don't think i don't think he, I don't think he yeah. was that certain straight away i think he had to have a little bit of convincing and then he, mm. i think he thought yeah this is great because i can now become a child's hero yeah and and be loved and try something different and spread his wings so you know you can understand his irascibility is mm. that the word um mm. with other people the because because yeah. he really believed passionately yeah. in his role and his series he believed it was his I series think i've read a story somewhere it might even have been quotes from william russell when he and jackie hill decided they wanted to leave mm. he went absolutely ballistic yeah. ballistic saying are you mad why do you want to leave yeah He's not wrong. He felt betrayed, actually, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, I think he did. I think he did. Yeah. Don't like change when you get to that age, do you? No. no. It's a thing, though. He, I mean, he must have, there must have been something in his mind at the time that thought to himself, I'm going to be remembered, you know, when they asked him mm. to do it. And he, he must have been thinking, I'm going to be remembered for nothing, really. I'm not going to be, re- I'm a character actor who's had fairly significant roles, but not leading roles in. Mm. A handful of films are going to be remembered and a bunch of films that have already been forgotten. And, you know, I mean, he had a successful career, but by no stretch of the imagination was he going to be remembered in the same way as, you know, the stars are remembered. Mm -hmm. And then somebody presents him with a chance to be remembered as the British Wizard of Oz. Which is what he said. He said it was a Wizard of Oz um, meets Father Christmas role. I yeah, think is his quote. Um, yeah, and you you kind of you can see that all the interesting things that he does on the you know, on the camera, you know, with his fingers. Yeah, you know, I think this is quite famous now. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you probably know the reason why he always holds his lapels and plays with his fingers and puts his hands up to his chin and goes hmm hmm. It's it's because he knows how big the frame is, and you know if you if you have your hands below the frame, they can't people can't see what you're doing, and hands allow such. Uh, you know, expression. character and expression. So he uses a lot. And he his biggest um, hero was Charlie Chaplin, who yeah. used a lot of, you know, um, movement. Gestures. Gestures, thank you very much. Uh, and Yeah, so it's interesting to see that he did that a lot. But there are some moments throughout where he on purposely try, grabs something and slightly misses and uh, and he says his line's wrong and it's all a bit too much for him. And you can think, oh, oh, William... Arteriosclerosis. Yeah, don't 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 over gesture, mate. But that was um, the illness. He, right. I mean, he yeah. wasn't diagnosed with it until pretty late, but he was obviously suffering yeah. it for mm. quite a while while he was playing the part. Right. And actually, the story of how they get rid of him is also another sort of 
Since I seem to be doing trivia this episode. <laughs> it was the, about three attempts, wasn't it? Well, nobody's <laughs> quite sure, because it's obviously... It's like the lady killers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. They tried a rifle, poison. Yeah. It's obviously not rope. documented <laughs> no. that these stories were attempts to get rid of the actor. But there are several stories in which it is now suspected that the production team were at the very least thinking, if William Martinell can't continue, here's a story in which we can carry on with somebody else. Oh my god, it's turned into one of those moments again. <laughs> Stop looking at you. Know, it's it's not William Hartnell who's corpsing. <laughs> it's because Mark came up with the third option to bump him off with a piano on a piece of rope and let go. <laughs> yeah. Just... yeah, Bill. <laughs> you like you, Charlie Chaplin. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, How about a bit of Buster Keaton for you? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Uh, sorry about that. I yeah. love Buster Keaton. He's great. Uh, yeah, so do I. Charlie Chaplin. Also great. But... Yeah. Susan. Oh. <clears throat> Susan. Mm. Not that we're, we aren't talking about anything, but okay. Susan. Let's go back to Susan. Susan. Well, did we talk about Susan at all? Shoddy. You didn't like her, did you? Oh, no, I like Caroline Broad. <clears throat> I mean the actual... Character. The character. Yeah. Shoddy. Mm. Mm. She's, this first episode is it's about this strange child that's yeah. different, and that's the whole point. And it's even there in the titles. Yeah. And it's a really fascinating child. character, and they just do nothing with her after that. Yeah, and then after that, from that point onwards, she's the one who, she, She's from the same place as a doctor at all. Isn't she's it? the one who falls over, gets lost, has to ask the questions. Yeah. Even when she comes back for the five doctors, she still has to trip over a rock, doesn't she? I mean, Poor woman. Yeah, that that was awful. I, I think that was an in joke on Terence Dix's behalf. Oh, well, yeah, fair play, but all that and the slight incline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the slight incline hanger, as yeah. you said, Mark. The other yeah. episode that was very funny because I wasn't there for that one. Oh, yes, I was. I was Welsh. Um, but then Vicky, what do you make of Vicky? Oh, I'm indifferent if I'm honest. I don't mind Vicky actually. I don't mind Vicky. At all. In fact, if you'd have started with her as a character instead of Susan and her not being the grandchild and being somebody that the doctor had accidentally picked up and was trying maybe to get back to her time and just couldn't do it and said, look, why don't we take a bit of time out? Mm -hmm. You go to the school while I sort the TARDIS out. That would have been, that probably may have worked better, I think, than the kind of family element going on. That would have been an interesting idea, actually. I don't have a lot of experience of those later stories, mainly because. Don't them exist. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, I mean, what was everyone's impression of how the dynamic changes? William Hartnell had, had a big problem with I, I've, William Russell leaving and, and <clears> the I dynamic. Think it, they were very fortunate that he struck up an instant relationship with Peter Purvis. They got yeah. on really well. William Hartnell and Peter Purvis got on really well. Yeah, mm. yeah luckily. And mm. so, <laughs> fortunately, it was kind of able to carry on as before. Yeah. The interesting thing that changes is the storytelling. Mm. Because here's the thing, and this is what I was writing about and what I was going to talk about, is that you start with this program that has the whole of time and space at its fingers. Tips. Fingertips. <laughs> and, uh, and you format it so heavily that you literally alternate between just two types of stories for the first two series, really, essentially, until with Dennis Spooner, eventually a little bit of change creeps in. But once Dennis Spooner and uh, Verity Lambert and David Whittaker and Mervyn Pinfield are all off the show, the floodgates are opened. It's not so much that they that they uh, don't do those two types of stories anymore, but the, the weird thing about the format is, and this is what some fans have a problem with these days, when somebody tries to do something a bit different, when season three kicks in, Verity Lambert's gone, Mervyn Pinfield's gone, 
all of a sudden it's the tone of the stories that completely mm. changes. They still alternate between historicals and science fiction, but rather than it being a serious program with the occasional sort of lighter episode, all of a sudden there are massive, massive differences in the storytelling. Mm. Yeah. And it's not just in the tone either. It's in some, sometimes it's in the way the stories are told. Yeah, it's something like the gunfighters. Yeah, not just that. The massacre, for instance, completely mm. sidelines your main character and it's essentially a one-character story. Stephen yeah. uh, Peter Purvis just has an adventure in France mm-hmm. and um, Dalek's master plan turns into this huge soap opera. But, I mean, Chase, okay, did a similar idea and he's a Marinus with a different location each week. Yeah, But they were kind of funny and uh, questy and pulpy and they were just there they were the lightweight episodes dalek master plan is a seriously big soap opera with you know the whole of time and space and life and death mm. yeah there's a lot of serious death in that yeah and then you've got <laughs> something like the ark which is kind of a hard science fiction idea when the series has been doing pulpy stuff you've got the gunfighters yeah. which is not so much that it's a comedy and it's not so much that it's a western but it's that up until that point, the historicals, even ones like the Mythmakers, which had been sort of, as we talked about the historicals before, it's based as much on legend as it is on fact. And they do, um, you know, the way they treat the characters is not out of the history books. But the gunfighters, and particularly then the smugglers, they're not about the history anymore. They're just using the historical background. That's a backdrop, yeah. Yeah, to just have a bit of, Daring do, fun, boy's own adventure. And then you, you've got other things like Mission to the Unknown, which we mentioned, the mm-hmm. one episode without anybody, which is like a sort of a Secret Service type story in space mm. with Daleks and stuff. And you've just, you know, I just mentioned it just now, the Myth Makers. Just, and then, you know, for crying out loud, the Celestial Toymaker. And the Celestial Toymaker kind of gets bracketed in with the sideways stories, but it's not. None of the people working on Doctor Who at that point had any inkling that at one point there were supposed to be sideways stories. They just made the Celestial Toymaker because they were just having a, what the hell, who cares, let's do it. That was, that's supposed to be one of the ones where they were talking about writing him out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, coming back to that, yeah. Let's let's write Will, William Hartnell out with, uh, <clears throat> with just erasing him completely. Not dropping a piano on him, but... Uh, well, they... <laughs> We sure to say for people who don't know these stories too well exactly how they may have written him out in that story and in the Savages before they eventually did yeah. in the Tenth Planet. And if you don't know about these stories, Wikipedia, <laughs> <laughs> it will have it all on there. Well, yeah, but we're about to say. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Sorry, what were we saying? Well, the Celestial. How would they if they had written uh, William Hartnell out in the Celestial Toymaker? How would it have happened? There's a point in the story, isn't there, yeah. where he goes invisible. And all you see is like a disembodied hand. Yeah. yeah. And, and eventually comes, even yeah. comes goes, back. I think. Yeah. And then I think the idea was that when he comes back, he looks totally different. Yeah, he could have come back with a different face. Mm. So it would have been the same man mm. with a different yeah. face. Which they did with Jamie later on in The Mind Robber. That's mm. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When he got, well. Which is a lovely, f- lovely sideways step. <laughs> but that's for a, to an entirely different purpose. Yeah. Mm. But the point is, and... You know, I don't miss this point. This is an important point. If they'd have brought him back as the same man, but with a different face, there would have been no precedent set for regeneration. Mm, no. And Doctor Who would have been cancelled at the end of the 60s. Mm. I mean, Doctor Who lost popularity at the end of the 60s. And they, as we mentioned last week, oh. tried to cancel it twice. 
and couldn't get anything else to replace it. So just did another season. All that myth would have disappeared. Not the myth, but, you know, the reality of regeneration that we know now. That would have gone, and it would have been a an interesting writer's, uh, you know, problem, problem conundrum. To, conundrum to try and change the character each time by using clever tricks like that. Yeah, Possibly. but what I'm saying is the precedent to change the character wouldn't have been set because in the Tenth Planet, he d- it is specifically set down that William Hartnell's Doctor stops and a new Doctor with a new face and a new personality, mm. in other words, a new person, starts. Mm. If it had been in the Celestial Toymaker, it would not have been a new person. It would have been a continuation of the same person with a different face and you would not have been able to pull off that trick again. Unless you actually did a sequel to Celestial Toymaker, well, in which you, you might you might be able to, but you, is that wacky enough that you could get away with it? <clears throat> Regeneration is a wacky enough idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but I think you're missing the point. If Am it's I? the same character, you can't do it again. You can't just keep saying, "Oh, it's the same man." Re- it, the whole point of regeneration okay. is it's a new man. No, it's the same man. No, it's the same man on the inside, but it's a new man. He is. Body, okay. I, I, his I personality, yeah, okay. his mind yeah. have all reprocessed into mm. a new person. But naturally, if they had have changed William Hartnell into somebody else, even though he's supposed to be playing, say, William Hartnell, <laughs> he would have naturally been a different person playing it slightly differently anyway. Yes, so, but you know, inside we, we, the we fiction, can speculate. A bit James Bond. Yeah, yeah, like that. Maybe. Mm. I mean, but, uh, you know. You can argue the toss over whether it would have, and this, that, and the other. I, if they'd have done it in the Celestial Toymaker, you'd have got to the end of the sixties. They would have cancelled it. We wouldn't be talking about it now. They wouldn't have wanted to, thought to, and because the precedent had set that they could change the leading actor. Did they have anyone lined up at that point? <clears throat> at what point? At the point where they were going to replace him. Oh, I have no idea. I don't know how serious this ever got, and it's obviously not down on record. No. It's the kind of, it's one of those things where you look at it, you look at these three stories and they're all points at which it looks like the production team were edging towards getting rid of it. I mean if they were if, as you say they were going to replace someone else but to play the same role then there's no way it would have been Patrick Troughton. No, it would have been somebody similar to William Hartnell. Yeah. There's only five stories away anyway and then he regenerates. Yeah. Um mm. Mm. Well, and in fact it's only two stories away from the savages which is like what people consider the second attempt. Right. Which it's is like a physical wonder, isn't it? Oh, I don't know the savages that well. It's the, one of the ones. Yeah, okay. I'm the piano could. again. But in yeah. the savages, guys, the doctor <laughs> lands on this planet where the uh, the population are divided into two mm. completely separate, entirely separate civilizations. Essentially, right. you've got the rich people living in the city with technology and everything else, and you've got these people on the outside, the savages. Wow, that's just like living in Britain at the moment. And the are we all going to tell the wheel? We're not even going to bother. And the, <clears throat> and the re, uh, one of the things that these uh, the elders, I think they're called, is it the elders in the savages? Mm, mm. One of the things they do in order to prolong their life, keep their youth, and maintain their life essence is they take the savages, they put them into the machine. They right. dis- yeah. they with you know mm. suck out the life essence from them, dark <clears throat> <clears throat> and then they essentially 
drink it into themselves. Mm. Even these savages are basically husks. They don't actually kill them. Yeah. Don't they? Uh, Human soda <clears throat> pop. Well, there's a scene in that story where the doctor's life essence is sucked out of him mm. and put into somebody else. And because it's the doctor and he's a time lord, his personality goes into this other person. And this other person is essentially, for an episode and a half or whatever, the doctor. Different body, different face, but the doctor. His personality has been taken out I of him. I can't believe I haven't heard or read. I have read it a long time ago, but I can't remember it. Well, essentially, what could have happened is at the end of that story, the life essence didn't get put back into William Hartnell, yeah. but it stayed in this other character, right. and he would have carried on as the Doctor. Well, anyway, that's two. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Already, yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what so I'm saying. Looking back historically, although it's not on record, yeah. these look like the first attempts to get rid of William Hartnell. Yeah. And I mean, you could just say we're conspiracy theorising it. There's not really anything in it, and it... Didn't no, happen I anyway. I think it probably is that there is something in it. I'm sure. But, I mean, it's a when bit he, too much coincidence. When he finally got to his his tenth planet moment, you know, where they were changing, and that's an, I find that a really interesting story because it feels like they've already got Patrick Troughton in that story because that story of the Cybermen and the base becomes of the, sea the template yeah. for is what like happened the, next. Yeah, yeah, it, it feels utterly like the template. Maybe I'm. Everybody knows this, and I don't. But I, I just kind of spotted it recently and thought, wow, that really is a. And it's such an iconic story for so many reasons. Obviously, it's the first time. Obviously, it doesn't get mentioned as a regeneration back then because yeah. they haven't really come up with much of that concept apart from mm. swapping them over. First time the Cybermen come in. Boy, they were freaky. I love those voices. Can you do the voice, Simon? I'm not sure that I can. <laughs> no, I'm not sure either. That's, That's, not, bad. Bad. <laughs> That's not bad. It's, it's a look of sorted well. It was that kind of bungle doing the Cybermen. <laughs> Not bungle. Zippy. Oh, it's the look of them, though. It's like, yeah, you had the ridiculous sort of lamps on the heads, but it's the sort of masks, the face. Oh, oh the freakiest thing about yeah. them was the metal arms and the real hands. Mm, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd love them. No, I love them at the opening yeah. of the mouths, and the mouths don't move, and the mm. words just come out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they look I mean, ridiculous. They do look ridiculous with the big chest packs and the, you know. But if you were to take the big chest packs off, for instance, and you mm. just had these very skinny men in bandages, and it's like a really, really terribly, you know, put together Frankenstein in a hospital. Yeah. We've had a go at trying to robotize ourselves. This is the best we can do with the technology we've got on this planet at that time of our history. I really like that. It's creepy, weird, and yeah. nasty. Um, I've, I've said to you before, I don't think in the podcast, about the comic strip Junkyard Demon. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you see what. With Crypto the Cyberman. Of, yeah. Which, what could have been made of those old. Cloth face sidemen because mm. it's really cool. I really think cool. we've said this before. It's whatever. That's the best kind of version of their story because after that they just end up becoming robots. robots. Yeah, just robots. Yes, yeah, we've, said, we've said this before. Yeah, yeah. I don't. There's yeah. no reason when we said things before not to say it again because uh, people are listening to this three months after the last time we said it. Plus, yeah. some people are listening to this for the first time. Mm. Yeah. I'm just saying what you say. Yeah, but, I know. I always say. <laughs> oh, I'm telling myself. There's, there's, there's some people who else. listen to each podcast about five times, but that's your stalkers, Joe. No, that's me. <laughs> that's not my stalkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, isn't it? You, Sadly, you, the rest you, of the tenth planet's rubbish. It's not that great, is it? It's not brilliant. And here's the weird thing: they bring this scientific advisor on board to try and yes. sort of bring some interesting science fiction ideas. Yeah, like so it that comes up with this work. idea of this planet that goes off travelling through the galaxy, through all these huge great vacuums of space, and just sort of kind of 
then comes back and falls back into an orbit. And not only that, but... And this is the weirdest thing, the thing I really couldn't get. Its continents look exactly the same as ours. Now, why would two planets, even if they're on a twin rotation, have continents that are exactly the same? Maybe they're Except, suffering of course, from incontinence. They're upside down. Oh. It just... I said, I'm sorry. Maybe it was just easier sorry. to buy a globe than make a new prop. Maybe. And if you listen to spare parts, then that's a very similar kind of northerners and English people in, in the uh, in the episode, which you kind of think this runs along the same lines. That's like a great 1950s, big finish story. 1950s thing, you know. But it is it is actually I love that story so mm. much. It's the best one, definitely. But the tenth planet, I'm sorry, it just if it had been a good story, you can forgive things like that because they're just kind of the sort of little mm. sort of fairy cake moments. This is this is going off at a bit of a tangent, but can you you can attribute some of the success um, and the mystique about Doctor Who why it's so popular? Weirdly, because of the missing episodes, because you get things like in my head since I was a kid, tenth planet was. It was a hazy thing. It was it was something really special, like you say. Because you not a special, yeah, exactly. It's the Target novel again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Particularly having read that as a kid, yeah. you build it up into this amazing story, yeah. and then perhaps if it did exist in its entirety, you, you know, get you get a good enough idea that it's not yeah. perhaps as great yeah. as you might think it is. I think but... Moonbase is probably even worse as mm. well. Yes, yeah. yeah Moonbase is essentially a those remake. Episodes that are there are pretty. Yeah, I mean. Well, it'd be interesting to see any of them, to be honest. <laughs> but I think also the Tenth Planet back. is the point, you know, and I keep saying this and keep ascribing different points to it because obviously it was an evolution. But you were saying part of the success of Doctor Who is due to missing episodes that you couldn't see like the Tenth Planet that yeah. became legendary. But actually the Tenth Planet became what Doctor Who does. Yeah, yeah. In a funny kind of a way, the War Machines and Tenth Planet and the two kept peddler ones then. They kind of become what uh, becomes eventually a stock in trade for Doctor Who that it hadn't ever really done before. There's no, I mean, I don't think there's a single base under siege, which is the popular term, story prior to the 10th planet. Everybody's looking at the list. No, now. I don't think there is. <laughs> no, no. Not really. Not, not in that. I don't think there is. Not in that the way that that's so formulaic. Yeah, and not just formulaic, but it, it sort of evolves down through... I mean, we all think of the season five Patrick Trouton stories as being the base under siege season, but actually they're all over Doctor Who, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's not just like a base, but isolated spaces, which you can't get into or out of, the Leisure Hive, the Hyperion 3 in... uh, is that Terror of the Vervoids or Nightmare of Eden? Yeah, Eden? oh god, both of those stories. Aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all these stories, Earthshock, set in spaces from which you can't get out, and nobody else should be able to get in. And the peril is the threat is either something that can get in or something that's already on the inside. Can I can I say the War Machines? Is that the that's the first Hartnell back on present day Earth, isn't it? Yeah, apart from Planet of Giants, but I don't think that, we can call. Uh, yeah, I almost don't count, count, count because they're kind of, Giants, of no. invisible in that story. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they are in present-day Earth, and uh, they give it a dodo and and Stephen pretty quickly, and bring in Ben and Polly, and it's it's all suddenly different. Uh, that is that when Kit Pedler turned yes. up, and and who wrote this one, The War Machines? Again, is that Ian? Ian Stewart Black. Ian Stuart Same guys Black. wrote The Savages. Right. Well, it's interesting because again, that feels like a bit of a Patrick Troughton. 
uh, the smugglers doesn't, and the planet does. So it's almost like the the whole thing's starting to change. Well, I've said period. this very does specifically. Does William Hartnell actually fit in those episodes as well? No, as not it really. You got things like the Inferno. I've Club, said this. Yeah, I've said this in this essay. Okay. Uh, the essay hinges upon the fact that with the War Machines and the Savages and the Tenth Planet, yeah, Doctor Who changes irrevocably, completely, and utterly from one program to another. Agreed. That is the point at which Doctor Who... You heard it here first, folks. We agreed. <laughs> J.R. and Lee agree on something. But it is. It's like, up until that point, anywhere in time and space, and although you can predict it will be history one week and the future the next, you can't predict in season three what kind of a story you're going to get. Mm. After the war machines, and once the smugglers and the highlanders are out of the way, you can pretty much predict what's going to be happening in next week's episode. Doctor Who is going to land somewhere. There's going to be an environment of, and a company of people. And there's going to be no escape and some kind of threat forcing its way in. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes... And, you know, love season five. Love season eight. Love Doctor Who. Love the entire 49 years of Doctor Who. But Doctor Who was never so unpredictable as it was in season three. No, no. And never so predictable as it has been ever since pretty much i think there are other pockets season 19 is a good example where doctor who suddenly goes off at enough of a tangent that it's me so we're just trying to work out which one that is yeah is that the one with um... kinder for to doomsday right Right. yeah okay black orchid i knew that unpredictable all of a sudden doctor who's gone back to being unpredictable but only for one year and then you've got season 20 is, and you've got a bit of that leading up into that season with things like Warrior's Gate. That's pretty out there, isn't it? Just the one story, though. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you can make cases, obviously. These are all stories. You can make cases for anything being different from the one before and the one afterwards. But, you know, to be honest, Doctor Who becomes, particularly after Terror of the Autons, a program that has a format. And it's, you know, the monster of the week, essentially. Mm-hmm. But prior to the War Machines, even in spite of the fact that, you know, you're telling stories in a format where you can tell that it's going to be history because we've just had science fiction, you can't tell what the stories are going to be and what they're going to be like. Just very, very quick mention. Um, obviously, the Time Meddler. First appearance of another member of the Doctor's race. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's kind of coming into the roots of the program. and, and That's kind uh, of pre-pivotal. Yes. We look upon it as being pivotal now. Yeah. And of course it is because of what people that followed those production teams and those writers made of that idea. Yeah. But at the time that idea, that story was written, there was no... It's almost like a one-off, isn't it? Yeah, there was no intention on the behalf of the people who made that story to go anywhere else with it. No. no. Sorry, can I just say, was he ever called the meddling monk? In that that story, yeah, I'm sure he is. Did he was he ever referred to by he's one def- of the He's definitely called it in the Daleks' master plan. Isn't yeah, it? that's what I was going to say. Okay. He becomes that. In he the becomes Dalek master that. plan, I think. Right, so that's from that's because the writer saying, "Oh, he's called Meddling Monk, so we're going to call him the Meddling Monk." Like in the Sea Devils, I, like I, in I like, the Ice Warriors. You know, okay. Recently, this is retconning. Recently, they've said, you know, the Time Lords choose their name. Okay, so you chose the Doctor, I mm. chose the Master. Blah blah blah. Okay, um, he chose the Monk. <laughs> right, but did he choose the meddling monk? Did he choose to be a meddling religious 
kind of hood we've, wearing. We've had, monk. Have we talked about this before? Does he, yeah, in every yeah, regeneration, yeah. is he a, another monk? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a series of monks. Well, you know, why is he called the monk in the first place? It's habit forming, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I don't know. It's a bit of a strange thing. I, I find those things annoying. That when writers work <laughs> out that there's they've got a good character on their hands with a little fre- nickname. Mm. That's kind of come from out of outside of Doctor Who, and then they bring it into Doctor Who and say, "Yeah, we're going to call him the Medlin Monk." And you kind of think, "Well, he's probably called Tom or something, or you know, <laughs> know what I mean?" Or okay, Dave. at what point? Mm. And I'm talking, and I'm not talking fiction here. <laughs> at what point does the Doctor become the Doctor? Ooh, mm. That's a really interesting. A question. name as mm. opposed to a description. <sighs> That's hard. Because in the first story, they're calling him the Doctor because they don't know his name. It's yeah, like no, saying the no. postman when you see the postman walking down yeah, the street. Yeah. They're calling him the Doctor because they think Is he's it the a war doctor. games. No, I mean, I it's, no, I think it's established by the end of the first. Oh, season right, I or see. Partway through the second season, I thought season. You, meant, you meant as an identity, as in, as in somebody. Uh, it's kind of recognised, like the Time Lords know him as the Doctor. So that is yeah, yeah, his yeah. name. Yeah, no, but that's title. what I'm saying. At what point in this? No, at what point in the series does he identify himself as the Doctor? Does he it, tell it, somebody that he is the Doctor? Because in that first story, and for those first says, few stories, they're calling him the Doctor, like you would call your postman the postman. But yeah. again, they we they call they you the postman, don't we? <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, the milkman. If you yeah. didn't know the milkman's name, you'd call him the milkman, right? right. And Ian and Barbara are calling the Doctor the Doctor. Yes. Throughout an unearthly child in the Daleks because they don't know his name. And they say but that to him point, outside the TARDIS and he says, Doctor, Doctor Who. Exactly. Like, uh, annoyed. Yeah. But actually, I think. Does that he recognise even the Doctor? Part I just, of it? I mean, obviously, this is retconning again, but I look at his face and I think it's almost like he's remembering because he hasn't been called that for so long, possibly. Maybe he's been wondering for so long. Like Obi-Wan he, just Kenobi. Called, he just gets called Grandfather. And so to be called Doctor is like, Doctor? Doctor yeah, Who. But they've been on Earth oh, for yeah, a while. So he must have had some. I mean, when we first meet him, he's returning to the junkyard from having gone somewhere. He must have, if he's been on Earth he's for... He's probably calling John Smith. Doesn't Susan call him the Doctor at any stage? Is it always Grandfather? Always Grandfather. Always Grandfather, yeah. Yeah, but she may have called him the Doctor to somebody. Yeah, he was, I, I'm I trying to remember where he, he's where she doctor. does. He's the Doctor. But what I'm trying to establish is not necessarily in the fiction. What I'm saying is, when they wrote the first episode, yeah, yeah. obviously the plan was to call him the Doctor. And in the credits in the, in the Radio Times, it said Doctor Who. Yeah, because right. that's what they've called a program. Yeah, because the program is named after the mystery that surrounds the character's name. Right, and so the intention at first is for Ian and Barbara to call him the Doctor, like I say, like you would call the milkman the milkman, because they don't know his name. Mm. But at some point, the writers either forget that that's the plan, or else make a new plan, or else has that plan been that his name is the Doctor from the start. Whereabouts does that become established that he is the Doctor, the definite article, as opposed to the Doctor, the indefinite article? And if you know that answer, please write in to <laughs> blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. But I'm sure everybody's got an opinion. And that's all it is now, obviously. <laughs> it's too far back in history to be anything more than an opinion, because if you look at the credits, his name is Doctor Who, and if you look at the paperwork, his name is Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, that's not a name; that is a nickname of sorts. So it's not like a; it's not ever supposed to be his actual name. But that's oh, his Wotan name. I do wonder if, yeah, it's the first. Maybe it's the it's the next Dalek story along where they recognise him or something. Does Wotan read minds? 
I don't know. It knows what TARDIS stands for, doesn't right, it? Right, so he knows what nobody... TARDIS He must be reading some, some, some kind of electronics level. He can no, get the Doctor and none of the others are there when it knows what TARDIS stands for. It, I'm just trying to work it out. You know. No, but you're trying. You're retconning it. Yes, I know, but I enjoy doing that. It's good fun. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I may have a podcast called The Retcon. Yes, <laughs> but I'm sure we will. Do Which it. I won't guest on. <laughs> I'm more interested. Let's do it. In... <laughs> <laughs> this is because I'm a writer, though. I'm more interested in what the writers are thinking. Yeah. Than yeah. you know retconning. You know the fiction doesn't add up. Well, it may be that Ian Stuart Black had in his head that the thing could read the Doctor's mind, that's all, and he just never scripted it. I'm just interested to see whether that was the Well, no, case. Ian Stuart Black had obviously never seen Doctor Who, because no. as soon as the Doctor <laughs> turns up on Earth, these government figures say, oh, Doctor's here, let's get him in. Yeah. And it's like, Doctor's never been on Contemporary and Let's not forget that everyone calls them TARDISes, even though Susan supposedly made up the name, so it's kind of... Exactly. It's like when one production regime changes to another production regime, yeah. and particularly in the black and white days, when they can't go back and watch old episodes on VHS yeah. or DVD like we can. And if they want to watch something, they've either got to, you know, sign the film spools out and organise a viewing screen and, a you know, a screening room to watch it on. And they're not going to do that all the time because, you know, there just isn't a wherewithal to do that. Or else they've got to get the scripts out and read through hundreds and hundreds of pages of scripts to find out what the continuity is. They don't find out what the continuity is. That's the simple answer. Mm. There are certain things that they just accept as... Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking at? There are certain things that they accept as facts when actually they are a lot more amorphous than that, like the mm. Doctor's name, like mm. the fact that the TARDIS is a TARDIS rather than the TARDIS. Well, again, if we want to retcon that one, you could could say that uh, Susan, uh, you know, knew them as Sidrats before and thought, well, that's a stupid name for them. I'm just going to rephrase it and re- rename it. And they all go, <laughs> the Time Lords go, you know, actually, that makes more sense. We'll call them all Tardises, guys. That makes much more sense. Thanks, Susan. <laughs> See, by the time of the chase, that's already out the window because the Do- Daleks call their time machines. I can't remember what they call them. Dardises. They oh, don't. I th- yeah. Do they call it a Dardis? They yep. do. You joking? Do. Nope. Tardis with a D at the front. That Dardis. was the chase. The chase. Oh, I can't yeah. bear that one anyway. So what does that stand for? Dalek and... It doesn't. It's Tardis with a D for Dalek. Dardis. <laughs> We're going to call it Dardis. We got no imagination. <laughs> do not question! <laughs> <laughs> but these... You see what I mean? Here's Terry Nation, who's been involved in the very second story in the series, and who should know these precepts about things like the TARDIS and the Doctor's name. And yeah, he's written an episode called The Death of Doctor Who, and he's written the Daleks' time machine in his The Dardis, which makes... (laughs) (laughs) It is stupid, isn't it? It is stupid. Uh, it's laughable but, now. But. Yes, okay, it's funny, but yeah. the, I'm trying to make a point. Yeah, that, no, and yeah. I've made the point, essentially, haven't I? I've said... Do you know, not laugh at Dardis. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to say goodnight. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It's late. Say. It's late. Okay. Uh, oh, next time. Oh, well, we haven't mentioned the three doctors, but yeah. Go on. We'll do oh, that when we do. Uh, can't we do. Can we just quickly mention Hartnell? The three Hartnell and Herndl. Very ill, couldn't make it to the set, yeah. had to have his scenes filmed. How different would it have been if he had have been able to walk around 
and talk to the other two doctors. Well, it would have been yeah. like the five doctors, except with William Hartnell instead of Richard Herndall. <laughs> <laughs> and there we and go. And no Peter Davison. <laughs> yeah. But it's not that but it much worked lovely in a lovely way, didn't it? Because it, did. it, it did. enabled him to mm. be superior over them. And, and Mark is probably quite nice. Which was in wrong. In longevity terms. I feel. Sorry? In fictional terms, that, that, that's wrong. Because, because he's younger. He's younger. I know, yeah. <laughs> Simply. <laughs> yeah, it is odd. Yeah, very, yeah. very, very wrong. And, right, should uh, we get to the end? Uh, Skip to the end. Yeah, stop dilly-dallying and cross it. <clears throat> hey, if you want to find out what's coming up, I said next week's episode is going to be called, and then didn't say, if you want to know what's coming up, check out the forum on our Facebook page, where you will find all sorts of unusual facts about the <laughs> Blue Box podcast. And new photos, of course. New photos. Yeah, new photos. No, not nude photos. New photos. Oh, what a relief. Of us, I say. So if you're oh, just yeah, if you want to find out what we look yeah. alike, you can always... It's, not, it's not an egotistical thing. It's just that look when alike. I... Look alike. <laughs> huh? You've already had a look I've alike got a look comment. Alike. Yeah, apparently yeah. I look like Richard Dreyfus. But I... Uh... Dreyfus. <laughs> Dreyfus. Dreyfus. Let's got an e in the it. whole thing on. Yeah, and a Y. Huh? And a Y. Dreyfus. Dreyfus. Who cares? Wow. Why is it Dreyfus when it's, it's got Dre- an e in it? It is Dreyfus, isn't it, Simon? Well, no, I always call him Dreyfus, but he might call <laughs> potato, himself Dreyfus. Potato. He yeah, calls whatever. himself Dreyfus. Mm. Oh, man. Fade this bit out. <laughs> <laughs> I was JR. I, I was, was Simon. Oh. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> he looked at me. It up. He looked at me. <laughs> I am Millia's puppet. So we always do this in the same order? Yeah, we do. We We didn't do anything. So dramatic pause. Oh, no, I don't... I didn't realise we did it in the same order. We do it at the start in the same order as well, don't we? Yeah, we do. What's the order? Me, Lee, Mark and Simon. Yeah, yeah. In in the order we came in. That's actually alphabetical order, isn't it? It's brilliant. J-L-M-S. That's just wrong. (laughs) In fact, if we get rid of Mark, we could be J-L-S. Whoa, oh, let's uh, not get rid of Mark. There, therein <laughs> is the reason Mark's here. That's the only reason he's staying. No, I'm joking. Thanks, guys. No, we love you, really. Well, That's the only reason for, we keep him. Thanks for listening, everybody, again, and uh, putting up with us. And please email us at blueboxpodcast mm. at yahoo.co.uk and... And enter the competition for that fantastic prize. Yes, indeed. After listening to this episode, they'll think they've heard that <laughs> worst episode already. No. Right, uh, so he was JR. And you were Mark. And he was Lee. And I was Simon. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> I thought you were going for the two Ronnie's effect there. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Good night. You can contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk.
R-R. R-R. Do not question!